This week, we dove into healthcare. Everybody listening has had a subpar experience with our healthcare system. Whether it's a friend, colleague, family member, or personal experience, our healthcare system is fraught with challenges. And part of the reason it's so difficult is because of how the incentives are set up. Patients, physicians, specialists, healthcare systems, and insurance companies have a web of complex, intertwined interests. But that's also what makes it such an interesting space to tackle. This week's guest was Sid Vismanathan, co-founder and president of TruePill. TruePill has created an API to help enable pharmacy fulfillment and delivery, white label packaging, and product design. Their goal, simply put, is to create a pharmacy infrastructure grounded in technology and automation to build a next generation healthcare platform. Sid and team have raised over $100 million to bring this vision to reality. And in this conversation, we discuss the challenges of innovating in healthcare, how TruePill provides customers with a better experience, and the ups and downs of leading a hyperscale business. Welcome, Sid. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Romine. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, Sid, really excited to have you on the show today. We're going to dive you know, pretty deep into healthcare and what you're building at TruePill. But before we jump in, give folks listening a bit more about your uh, background and your journey to TruePill. You've had a pretty interesting journey starting in healthcare, moving to tech, and then, of course, you know, coming back at the intersection of both. Yeah, I went to college at, at Carnegie Mellon. And I studied engineering, but but sometimes I, I look back and I think maybe the wrong type of engineering. I was actually a mechanical engineer out of college, and my first job out of college was at, at Johnson and Johnson, and it was as a device engineer. And I was working on a at an implants division in the in, in the Boston area where I was designing screws and inserts and implants for orthopedic surgeons. And one of the best parts about that experience was I got to rotate around a few different business units as part of this rotational program out of college. And it got me exposed to a whole bunch of different areas. But along the way, it, it also kind of surfaced this feeling along the way that I wasn't really into mechanical engineering. I didn't really like any part of the jobs that I, I was working at through that time. And there was a stint that I had out in the Bay Area where I got exposed to software. And that's where a lot of my college friends were in high tech jobs in the Bay Area. And it was my first glimpse into the world that, that is Silicon Valley. And I've spent now the last 12 years or so in the Bay Area. And it was, it was the earliest glimpse I had into how different this, this, this area works. And it was infectious. And I had to just figure out how I wanted to get into that. And I didn't have a computer science degree. I didn't have a computer engineering degree. I had no coding skills even at the time. And so I was really forced down that path of, of, of being self-taught. And, and that's how I eventually started my first company and, and sold that company to LinkedIn uh, a little while later and, and spent about four years at LinkedIn and then went on to eventually start TruePill. But, but for me, I had a very sort of roundabout way into tech. I kind of serendipitously jumped into it and I honestly could not get a job in tech. There was no product role that I could get because I didn't have that ECE or, or sort of computer science or computer engineering background. And I wasn't going to get a software engineering job. And so really that led me down this path of ultimately having a problem that I wanted to solve. And I just had to go figure out how to build that solution myself as the only way I could stay in tech or live the tech life, if you will, because there was no other way I would get the chance to do it. And so on one end, you kind of have this stumbling in approach into tech. And, and, I, and I appreciate the honesty because I think there's there's often revisionist history um, when at least superficially it looks like things have worked out. So you have this kind of stumbling into tech on one side. But then something else you've said before, which I really like, is this idea that when you're starting something, you know, be really intentional about it and think through the longevity of your own founder market fit, right? 
Um, and it's, it's kind of this idea that, you know, if you're, if you're not into the problem that you're solving, it's going to be really hard, you know, to build a company and, and last through the longevity, which, which is required to build a successful company, expand on that concept a little bit more. And then let's, let's use that to, to parlay into TruePill and talk about why TruePill is what you decided to dive into. I think many founders and even investors talk a lot about product market fit. And that's that's what gets glorified. And you'll find tons of blog posts on, do you have product market fit? How do you achieve product market fit? And much less is talked about founder market fit. And, and that's why I love uh, I love the question and thinking a lot about that. It's, it's very basically or simply put, it's, are you the best founder for this kind of business? Or are you and your founding team the best founders for that company. And, and oftentimes it's hard to actually understand what that means. Like, how do you know you're better than another founding team? And it's not really a competition at the earliest stage. So you can break it down even into to smaller components. And, and one component that I like to look at it as, do you have all the skill sets on your founding team to build your first MVP? Are there any major gaps where you maybe don't have a technical person on your team, or you don't have a domain expert on your team if you're going into one that requires domain expertise. So a very like simple heuristic I use is, does the founding team have every skill set they need to get to market with their first product? And I think that's certainly maybe an investor criteria, but as a founder, that's a criteria I always use to make sure that uh, with the folks that I was working with, and, and eventually when I met Omar, we were really honing in on that. And I think it's very easy to say I started my career in healthcare and somehow I stumbled into healthcare again and brought my tech background into to healthcare. It, it couldn't be further from the truth. I was spent about a year or a year and a half struggling to find that idea and problem space that I wanted to dive into. And if anything, one of the things I learned in that journey was if you are bored or get kind of demotivated or not excited about an idea like three or four months into prototyping and getting it launched and going through that motions then you have no shot. You are not going to build a successful company in that specific space. And so I went through like three or four cycles of that launching stuff, experimenting. I had tons of fun doing it. But when you get to that critical, like, okay, now how do you scale this? How do you actually grow this? How do you turn this into a business? There wasn't a lot of excitement. And one of the things I noticed when I, I first met Omar, Omar is actually a pharmacist. And I had a chance to go into an industry that I knew very little about and peeling back those layers over the first three to six months of getting to know each other and learning about the space, um, I just kept asking question after question after question. And unlike the previous kind of experiments where I was coding and building stuff, I wasn't running any kind of code here. Yet six months into it, I was more hooked into the problem than I was for anything else I tried in the in that last sort of year, year and a half period. So. So you, so you decide that it's, you decide it's TruePill, right? And, and you kind of go through this founder market fit, um, you know, process or so. For people that don't know, describe TruePill, right? What's the problem the company is solving and, and the state of the business today? TruePill is a digital health platform that combines pharmacy, diagnostics, and telehealth to solve consumer health problems. And when we got started, we were just pharmacy. It, it goes back to Omar being a pharmacist, having over 10 years of experience in that domain. And we landed on a thesis to go to market, which was very simple. It was, what would it look like to be the pharmacy infrastructure of the future? We had started to see these shifts in the market where our conviction was around this need for a new type of infrastructure and this realization that the existing infrastructure out there, the Rite Aid, Walgreens, CVS, it was not going to adapt to this consumerization shift that we were going in healthcare. And 
Um, I don't know when along the way it was, you go, your question was, when did you decide it was Drupal? And I don't actually know when in that journey of exploring the, the, the customer discovery period or learning kind of our thesis to market, there were probably several aha moments along the way, but it was really once we got to our first customer saying, okay, we need this. And then kind of dealing with the fact that it takes like nine to 12 months to get your first pharmacy set up. So you're dealing with regulatory processes, getting insurance contracts set up. You're, you're not building any of your product just to get out the door and get started. And so somewhere along the way, we built the conviction with our first customer, our first go-to-market thesis. And we were really lucky that that thesis worked with our first customer. And then from there, um, we, we in some ways uh, caught lightning in a bottle is, is what I like to say. Well, and there's a number of elements of this business, you know, both business model, sector, et cetera, that I, I find interesting. And, and we can unpack a couple of them, but I want to start with the with the API play, right? So if you if you think about in technology, great businesses, Stripe, Twilio, et cetera, have been built this way. And it's become more and more common to run kind of what I'll call API as a service, right? Businesses over the past decade. I'm curious though, Sid, what makes this uniquely compelling in healthcare? And what are the challenges that healthcare presents when you're trying to adapt this type of business model to this space versus other spaces? Yeah, it's like, how cool is that, that today we can build APIs and businesses and turn them into, in many ways, industry defining companies. When you look at our role model companies, a Stripe and a Twilio, for example, it's, it's, they started with a simplistic concept of an API. And I think that's just an extremely powerful concept. And when I take a step back and even, and not even healthcare specific, and I look across every sector that's gone through its own consumerization shifts, I think you'll see in every sector, whether it's e-commerce or payments or, or telecom, or, or more recently in fintech, you'll see these large platform companies that have emerged that are largely defined as, as an API business. And that concept 10, 15 years ago, prior to Twilio, I don't even think that existed. And so we're at a stage now today where we've seen hundreds of billions of dollars of market value get created with the concept of an API first business. And you look at platform companies like a Shopify or Stripe that have really defined their own respective categories. And when you look at healthcare more specifically, you don't see that platform company. At least we get up every day and we get excited that there isn't a clear platform winner in healthcare. And for a variety of reasons, healthcare has been maybe one of the slowest industries to consumerize. And so we're at that stage right now where we're going through our own motions. We certainly have the, the, the tailwinds of, of, of a pandemic that are hitting us right now. And everyone is forced to move into this virtual care, or virtual first model. And our API first or platform first approach really lends itself well to that. I think the one thing that we have learned along the way that differentiates us from maybe some of our, our role model companies is that in healthcare, it's not just about delivering the technology infrastructure. It's not just about the APIs, for example. We also have to deliver the underlying healthcare product or service. So when you look at our business units, whether it's pharmacy, diagnostics, or telehealth, this means our APIs ultimately get to a pill or a, a package getting from our facility into a patient's home or connecting a patient to a provider or getting a lab test into their home. There's a very complex physical component to this, especially in healthcare. And that's where we've seen our version of a platform company emerge, one where you build the digital infrastructure, but you also deliver the underlying healthcare product or the service. And so Sid, talk about those three uh, pillars of the business, right? So pharmacy, diagnostics, and telehealth. 
Talk about each of the pillars uh, and your vision for each and then how the three intertwine to form that comprehensive platform you're alluding to. Pharmacy is where we got started. And I think the first thing I'll point out here is we think our competitive advantage in the market is combining these three business units. And when telehealth came about, it became more clear. And then finally, when we got to diagnostics and launched that late last year and then starting to scale that now in the beginning part of this year, we're starting to see all three business units coalesce. And the easiest way to explain this is when you think about the last time you had a doctor visit, or if you've used a telehealth provider for the first time during the pandemic, there's usually one of two most common outcomes that happen from these visits. Number one, your telehealth provider is going to write you a prescription to go get a medication, or in other cases, they're going to need to get further diagnostics or they're going to need you to get a lab test, for example. And in both of those scenarios, there's follow-ups that are involved in the real world where you may have to walk into a retail pharmacy. You may need to get into a quest diagnostics to take a lab test. And so when you look at the three pillars of our business, getting prescription products to our patient's home, facilitating that doctor visit, which is our telehealth business, and then getting that lab test to the patient's home. We kind of call this the, the three legs of a stool, if you will. And we think that we can service over 80% of healthcare through a virtual setting with these three specific business units. It's, it's one where you don't have to break up the patient experience or the consumer flow to then go into the real world to get a lab test at a physical lab, or then walk into your Rite Aid Walgreens CVS. And so when you think about a bulk of healthcare issues and conditions that, that we face in this country, you can serve almost all of them through a virtual setting or a large majority of them once you have these three components. And for us, it was extremely critical as we expanded our platform vision to be able to build these unique end-to-end -end types of experiences that touch on all three pillars of that business, because it's ultimately what you need as a patient. You need lab tests, you need medications, and you need access to doctors. And so that's kind of how we reverse our engineered ourselves into our platform vision. It was what patients needed. And anytime there was a physical touch point that you had to break up your digital experience from, that was a clear opportunity for us to get in and make sure we, we build a platform version of it. And why was pharmacy the right entry point? How did you think about what the right entry point for this business and building the platform was? Well, if you go back to the, the founder market fit question that we, we started with, it was my, my co-founder Omar was a pharmacist. And so it begs this question of if, if he wasn't a pharmacist, then what would we be doing together in that room? Like, what, what would we be building and tinkering on? And so in many ways, it, it lent itself to starting from, from that point. And, and Omar being a pharmacist allowed us to go really deep into that domain. And along the way, it became very evident that Interestingly, pharmacy is the most frequent touch point that we all have in the consumer health world or in the healthcare system in general. You might see your doctor maybe once every six months, once every 12 months. You may get lab tests once a year, for example. But if you are on a medication, you may have an interaction every single month with your local pharmacy or retail pharmacy. And so it turned out to be this unique insight where it was the most frequent touch point. And we started to see this emergence of, of new business models being created and built around this touch point. And, and we've seen this model proliferate with companies like Hims and Hers and Nurex, where the experience with your provider may be once a year, that too asynchronously, but the interaction with the brand is actually in the physical package, the, the package that includes the prescription product that you get every single month in the mail. And so for us, it was, again, back to that founder market fit. It was Omar being a pharmacist, us having conviction that the market needed this infrastructure approach to pharmacy. And then from there, branching out into the other adjacent spaces being telehealth and diagnostics.
We talked a little bit about, you know, the consumerization of healthcare and, and the, the impact that's having generally and why it allows a space for a business like TruePill to be formed. Um, I'm curious on what your perspective is more broadly on the consumerization of healthcare, right? So you guys are in the bowels building a business basically on top of this underlying shift. How do you as a healthcare founder think about what does consumerization of healthcare mean to you? And what are some of the elements that you're most excited about when you think about the consumerization of healthcare? I think it's a great point to sort of define what is consumerization of healthcare and, and what does that mean for our healthcare system? And I'll try to distill it down into a couple of key points. I think first and foremost, it's today's modern consumer. They are going to GoodRx and printing out a coupon when they want a discount on their prescription product. They are then using a service like Hims and Hers to address a mental health issue that they may face. All the while they're pulling out their smartphone and getting on doctor on demand because their child is sick. This is consumerization of healthcare. It's not driven by their health plan's benefit or their employer catered health insurance plan. It is a consumer going to get their healthcare where, when, and how they want it in the modality that they choose. This is what we think is fundamental to, to consumerization of healthcare. And I think the second point is, as I mentioned, building it in the modality and a platform of, that the consumer chooses. And oftentimes these experiences that we see that achieve these 80 plus NPS scores that we're routinely seeing amongst our customers, they're guided by bringing delightful consumer experiences to the patient. And I think we've all been spoiled, especially in Silicon Valley in this world of, we can press a few buttons on our phone and just about anything can show up in minutes or you know, certainly the following day. And I think now consumers are, are beginning to, to not only ex expect this, but they're demanding this from their healthcare. And the reality is, the existing healthcare infrastructure cannot deliver those truly 10x better or 80 plus NPS healthcare experiences. And that's where we insert TruePill and, and, and talk about why we can unbundle this to help you achieve the consumer experience that you want. So we get super energized and excited by any customer. This can be a direct to consumer health, health brand. This can be some of the largest insurers and health brands in the company, in the country. They're often associated with not building the most delightful experiences, they're turning to TruePill now asking about, hey, how do I build an experience that gets an NPS of 80 plus? How do we leverage TruePill infrastructure? And so I think consumerization to me is, is adapting to these evolving needs of consumers who are going where they want, oftentimes outside of the benefit of their health plan and paying in some cases cash out of their own pocket. This is consumerization of healthcare. And I think we're in a good position to try to capture it and, and build a platform to, to cater to it. And talk a little bit more about that, right? Talk a little bit more about some of the specifics that you guys are building to, to capture on that trend. And I'm curious how you think about what this enables you to really do at scale. Uh, and if there's any examples as you're, as you guys have been building the business, it'd be great to elucidate the point, you know, with an example or two. Sure. Why don't we uh, take a look at one of our flagship programs that we launched last year with the United Healthcare Group. This was a large-scale flu COVID program for nearly about 500,000 patients. And these were the most at-risk patients in our country, usually above the age of 65. And it goes back to, you know, going to consumerization of healthcare, the theme we just touched on. It's not about just smartphone-enabled millennials using these consumer health experiences. Here we have an example where we built an end-to-end -end experience for 500,000 at-risk seniors. And the flow involved a flu COVID bundle. And the problem statement here was, was pretty simple that last year in the pandemic, and, and we still go through it, we entered the first flu season, probably start around September, October, where 
our most at-risk seniors in this country, they're going to face symptoms during the flu season. And they're not going to know whether they have the flu, they have the COVID, and they're not going to know how to address that. And the worst thing you can have during the pandemic is patients with just the flu showing up in a hospital environment, which by the way, happens often. And you look at the amount of costs that health plans incur just because of hospitalizations related to the flu that only gets exacerbated by the fact that we're in a pandemic. And so the nature of this program was having a, a senior citizen enroll on a website. They then enter some questions about their history, uh, specifically related to allergies to medication, specifically generic Tamiflu. And then from there, a telehealth provider from our network reviews that patient profile. They write a prescription for this patient, and that prescription now makes its way into the TruePill ecosystem. And from there, our team is packing a customized kit for this patient. And this kit includes a Bluetooth thermometer that's sending temperature data back and forth to TruePill. It's got a COVID test. Now, this touches our diagnostics part of our business, and it's got generic Tamiflu. If you've ever taken Tamiflu, it's, it's a common flu medication. And this kit shows up at a patient's home with the idea being that when you have symptoms, there's a big phone number on the box that you call into and you get connected to one of our synchronous telehealth providers. And these providers in a live conversation, they're going to guide this patient through a consult where they'll advise them on whether they should take the COVID test or whether they should take the flu medication, or in some cases they've had to intervene recommending they go to urgent care or even call an ambulance on behalf of the patient because of how serious the, the, the symptoms were. And so this is an example of when you talk about consumerization of healthcare, this program wouldn't exist prior to Truepill. It was all our pieces, assets, and infrastructure that we spent the last three years building to, to really seize this opportunity where you had to build this in three months, because if you didn't build it in three months, well, you missed the flu season. If you missed the flu season, then you have no business building a flu COVID program because you would have missed the boat on the, on the season. And so really we've seen how speed and flexibility of our infrastructure, that's also part of consumerization shifts in healthcare. If there's, if there's one thing I think we, we all know in, in the consumer driven world that we, we live in, the consumer mindset, it, it shifts every quarter. And so if you're not building at that lightning fast speed of getting products out the door in a quarter timeframe, which by the way, is not the norm for some of the largest healthcare incumbents in our country, you just can't operate on a two to three year timeline, especially in the, the midst of a pandemic where you're trying to launch the first of its kind flu COVID program. So this combination of speed and flexibility, leveraging our different assets, we really brought to bear a, an, an offering that was the first of its kind for a very large health plan and the most at-risk patients in our in our country today. So something that we're, we're really proud of and hopefully we can continue to expand on that program. I think one of the interesting things about what you're sharing, Sid, is there's there's kind of two underlying threads of increasing access and reducing friction, right? Which typically, when you look at any other industry, those two components reduce costs. Now, healthcare is in lockstep with two other aspects of our economy, construction and education, for which when you think about sectors that haven't improved on a cost-adjusted basis over the last 50 years, you think of healthcare construction and education, right? Meaning cost of care is continuing to increase. And a lot of this cost isn't adjusted to actual care. It's the ancillary services around the care. When you think about the specific impact TruePill is having on cost of care, right? How do you quantify that? And then more broadly, as a health tech founder, how do you think about cost of care in the healthcare system? Look, I think the, the backdrop to that question is that we have some systemic issues that we are unpacking here in healthcare that leads to the high cost of care, the complexity in our system. Today, 
I working in healthcare, I cannot explain to my father-in-law why his copay is a certain amount or why it changed from December of last year to this year. I can give him any number of 12 or 15 different reasons of why that was the case. But the reality is we're going through it still right now, about to get on a call with a pharmacy to understand why his copay changed. And I know maybe 15 of the reasons, but that doesn't help my father-in-law who is wondering why his copay went from X to Y over the change in the calendar year. So we've got a lot of systemic complexities in our industry, the way health plan is designed that leads to the, the high cost of care in this country. And we've got to unpack that and we've got to work through it. But what I can tell you is that some of the things that we're seeing in terms of the, the cost of a telehealth visit, the cost of doing things through a virtual setting, we're seeing order of magnitude differences in the, in the cost structure. And I think the best example of, of where we're seeing this is a consumer's willingness to pull out their own credit card, shell out their own hard-earned money to pay for some of these experiences that we're referencing, whether it's a hims or hers or a doctor on demand visit online, for example. And the reason for that is the digital health movement or the consumerization of healthcare has brought the cost structure down to a point where you're not dealing with some of the institutional complexities that no, without any doubt, kind of add some of the pricing pressure. Consumers are willing to pull out their wallet and spend 50, 60, $100 for a healthcare experience that they choose, that they want, that they need. And I think that is a great sort of signal of, of where the market is heading. It's we can lower the cost of care through virtual. Eventually, I think we're going to start to see health plans and the largest payers in the country react and adapt to this because there's no doubt that this unbundling of primary care, this unbundling of healthcare overall, where patients in silos can go pull out their wallet and solve problems, that's not the intent of how employer-based healthcare is driven or designed in this country. And that's a broader issue on, on maybe talking about the future of employer-based healthcare and how that unfolds and, and kind of takes shape. And there's certainly a need for that when you're very sick in this country or you need very high-cost drugs there is a very specific need. You have health insurance in this country today. And for some of these other areas where you can spend out of your own wallet or pull out your own money to pay for it, you're starting to see a, a drastic shift where the current health plan design is not meeting the needs. It's also affordable enough that you can pay out of pocket. And that's what we're seeing, seeing massively take shape in the market today. And I think that is an encouraging sign. It is a scary sign as well on what does the future of healthcare look like in five or 10 years. But um, needless to say that this consumer shift is happening. It is unavoidable. And we just want to hold on and, and sort of build the infrastructure that moves a large part of this market into this ushering in this new era of healthcare, if you will. Yeah, let's let's talk about what, what that future of healthcare looks like. I think one of the interesting things when I think specifically on cost of care, and you just alluded to it in your response was, you know, look, legacy businesses in healthcare, you know, have different types of cost structures, which increases cost pressure, right, which ultimately gets passed down to the consumer. One, one of the examples of that is most legacy businesses in healthcare started as physical businesses, right, and then went digital out of necessity. You, you guys are the opposite, right? If you even if you put the infrastructure component of your business to the side, you're digital native but you're exploring and then expanding into physical outlets, right? I want you to talk a little bit more about this approach versus the former. And what does it allow for from an end user experience and an access perspective? How do you guys think about that at the company? Today, we, we work with some of the largest insurance providers, drug manufacturers, largest incumbents in healthcare. And one of the things that's been most eye-opening for us is that 
and this is probably true for many startups across many different industries is when you're a young company, you get the benefit of, of starting with a blank slate. You get to build your assets and your infrastructure and pieces from scratch. And that's a very material difference to having to retrofit your existing products or services or businesses. And that inherently leads to that whole speed and flexibility argument that we were chatting about earlier. It's if this is all about speed and flexibility, are you placing your bet on a new startup who has a completely blank slate to build for what's needed in the market? Or are you betting on a very large and and an incumbent in the space retrofitting their existing technology and infrastructure? And I think, you know, hands down, we've seen the story play out across multiple industries that the speed to market of the, the startup generally wins, even in this David and Goliath type of scenario. And I think that's certainly something that we have seen. And what we like to caveat this with is when we build our telehealth product, for example, we're not trying to get to feature parity with a Cerner or Epic, which are, which are the two largest EMR platforms in the country. We're not trying to compete with them. We're not trying to build a product that has the same features or functionality. Instead, it allows us to take a very fresh approach to thinking about what does our market need for this? What does consumerization of healthcare need? And by and large, if you look in the market today, there doesn't exist a telehealth only EMR provider that's sold to the market because the reality is you had to kind of be at the right time, right place, starting that business, which was arguably maybe three or four years ago when we got started, which then got accelerated by the pandemic. But it's different. In the face of the pandemic, we saw every EHR provider begin to retrofit and build features to address this telehealth movement because every business needed telehealth. But I think that's something we, we've seen time and time again is when you get a fresh slate, you can build from scratch. You can build very specifically for your audience and your consumer and that's something that's hugely empowering for us, where we've been able to demonstrate just by going faster and building only what's needed for this new healthcare movement, as opposed to trying to solve everything in healthcare, which is obviously a lot of stuff. Uh, we just kind of stay in that focus of solve the virtual care first problems. And, and what we're starting to see is this expansion of there's no shortage of the types of things you can do over a virtual care setting. And I think that um, that bodes well for our infrastructure, hopefully, as we continue to build the use cases. And the way I know that is there's like no week that goes by in our company where I don't hear of a use case for our infrastructure that was new, that we didn't plan for. We don't have strategy meetings thinking about all these different use cases. We see a truly new, unique, and novel problem that our infrastructure can solve. And, and that's what I think is extremely exciting and encouraging for us as we build for this next phase. And is the is is solving the virtual care problem the framework that you guys adopt or you guys think through when prioritizing? Because one of the things I think that's interesting about your business is there's multiple complexities in the business, right? And and we can kind of segment them in two buckets. There's the external complexity, which is dealing with all the very different types of stakeholders you guys interact with. But I think then there's the internal complexity of the business, which is you're a software company, you have hardware, you have digital, you have physical you're touching a whole bunch of different types of elements in your business. So talk a little bit more about how, as an operator, you think through managing the complexities in the business and what are the implications when you're prioritizing, you know, how to evolve and, and build. There's no denying our, our business is, is very complex. And that's something even on our recruiting, whenever we're talking to candidates, we have to explain that this is not like traditional software or traditional tech where you may be moving bits around and you don't have to get your, your hands messy. There is implications to every time one of our APIs is used, it determines 
what pill is dispensed from what machine and what packaging and going to which patient. And so there are real lives at stake here. There's patient safety at risk here that you have to embrace that, but not only from a compliance standpoint, but just from a willingness to understand the operational implications of everything you're doing. And there's no avoiding that. We, we, we operate in a very complex industry with a very complex business. But I think once you, once you get over that hurdle, the, the way we've been able to kind of stay focused and stay prioritized is, is just by virtue of how big healthcare is. You can, get, you can get caught in trying to uncover so many different stones in the healthcare stack. And they're all important problems. Don't get me wrong. There are data problems. There are infrastructure problems. There are so many things across the healthcare stack that need fixing and need solving. But the way we try to focus our efforts as we build our platform is to really narrow in on the things that directly touch the consumer experience. In other words, if I build this infrastructure component or feature, will it directly impact that patient experience as it relates to this consumerization shift? And I want to contrast that with something very deep in the stack that might be how your copay accumulator works or how a manufacturer coupon is adjudicated or underneath the stack, there are such innovative products on how when you're denied for coverage, how denial coverage products kick in to change the cost of your drug in real time. Now they all have downstream implications to that patient experience, but they don't directly touch your interaction with a with a healthcare journey or a healthcare product. And so that's that's been able to help us really focus on the things that that we want to build in our three business units. It also allows us to, to begin to understand the other parts of the, the healthcare ecosystem that we may be going into in, in the coming years as we expand. Because all those other pieces that I mentioned, they all have second or third or order effects on impacting that patient journey. We're just in, in such an early stage in our company's evolution to solve some of the basic problems, which is today, I don't want you to have to go into your doctor and then have to go into the pharmacy and then get a follow-up to have to go into a lab. That is just not a fun experience. And what can, what can take in, in the real world weeks to get done, first off, was very hard to get done during the pandemic. And now over a virtual setting, you can do that in a span of 24, 48, 72 hours, which ultimately gets to improve quality of care at a lower cost structure than what it would take if you went to those three individual components in our ecosystem today. There's a lot of parallels to draw on between TruePill and I think some of the incumbents in, in big tech. You talked about earlier that, you know, of course, you interface with a lot of the incumbents in healthcare. Where my mind goes to is how the incumbents in big tech are, are thinking about these same types of problems. So, you know, one parallel I, I like to draw when, when thinking about your business is how Amazon thinks about the space. So, you know, both you and Amazon were early on in the fulfillment game. Of course, Amazon has a ton of fulfillment centers around the U.S., you know, now, coincidentally, you're competing in the same space with Amazon Pharmacy. How do you think about your specific strengths and weaknesses when you think about big tech uh, and how they're operating in the space? And I'm, I'm curious if you see some of those participants more so as competitors and potentially some of those as collaborators. Yeah, well, first off, being included in the same sentence as Amazon is, is first off, very flattering. So thank you for that. It's also really scary, right? It's, <laughs> it is certainly it's, it's the best of both worlds that you have to deal with. But it, it, is, it is a force that you have to discuss and you have to kind of uh, unpack and understand what their efforts in the space are just because of their past history and executing in every industry, really, that they uh, enter into. And for us, I think where we're extremely confident in our positioning is we would not want to be that direct-to-consumer pharmacy going head-to-head -head with, with Amazon. That's not core to our business, and that's not a, a position that, that we think we can win. Instead, 
our positioning has always been about a white labeled approach, a white label platform approach to helping some of the incumbents. And you'll you never hear this you know, say it really openly, but in some ways it's this consumerization shift, it is dealing with the Amazons of the world that are coming to eat your lunch. And if you don't react to that and don't consumerize your experiences today to fend off the Amazons of the world, then you face significant risk to your core business model. You face significant market share dynamics over the next three, four, five years. And it's not going to happen overnight, but certainly it's coming. And I think where we benefit is going to these large incumbents and, and guiding them and walking them through how we can help them consumerize their experiences to retain that market share, to continue to grow that market share in the face of evolving competition. I would say three, four years ago, you could ignore, ignore consumerization as just, just some noise. But today, it's very clear with, with Amazons of the world entering the space, with the rise of the direct-to-consumer health brands that we've powered for the last four years, and now the backdrop of the pandemic, this is going to happen. And either you embrace it, and you shift your businesses to address and adapt to these consumers' changes, or you maybe face some struggling years coming ahead of, as a business. And so we, we definitely want to be on the side of enabling and helping the existing incumbents build these experiences because we think fundamentally it's what's needed for this next phase in, in healthcare. Final question, Sid, as we round out the discussion, it's a question I've enjoyed asking many of our guests on the show, particular to their space. What's the one thing you believe about healthcare that you don't think others would agree with you on? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I should have read my questions before. I would have had come prepped. Um, let's see. Um, Take your time. I think one that, that comes to mind here is that I think we have the best healthcare here in the United States. And I want to be clear with my words here that I didn't say the best healthcare system or the best cost structure per se, but I've seen firsthand how when you need the best care in the world, when it matters the most, um, why I think this country offers the best care bar none. And I, I know this from personal experience, my, my wife and son, my wife has been through, I think now four open heart surgeries. My son had heart surgery when he was two weeks old. And, you know, I've seen how having some of the best care in the world has, has literally saved their lives. And I want to caveat that by saying, I've been very fortunate to to have access to some of the, the best healthcare in the world. And that's something where we still have a lot of work to do as a healthcare system to bring that access to every American in our country. But I've seen firsthand how when you are very sick and when you need some of the, the best care in the country, there's really no better place in the world that I wanna be than, than our country here, the United States. And that might not be something that, that everyone agrees with, but I believe it uh, wholeheartedly because I've lived it, I've seen it firsthand. Well, Sid, I, I appreciate the personal anecdote and I appreciate all the all the perspectives you shared on the show today. It's going to be incredibly exciting to continue to watch, you know, as you guys develop the plumbing and the infrastructure for for continuing on this trend of consumerization of healthcare. So thanks so much for taking the time. We, we really enjoyed having you on today. Thanks, Ramin. It was a, a lot of fun.